You may think you know the Museum of Flight, but do you really? Most museums have about 1% of their collection on display at any time. In this four-episode mini-series of The Flight Deck, we'll be looking at the extremes of our collection, four artifacts that tell amazing stories and stand out in unique ways. It was uh, an absolute joy to track down this little mystery from our, our collection. Over the course of these episodes, we'll go behind the scenes at the Museum of Flight's collection. We've got a lot of rare and unique materials that you won't find anywhere else. To explore our smallest artifact. I kind of laugh because when they were like, yeah, it's, it's really small. And I'm like, well, how small could it be? Our biggest artifact. It's the heart and soul of the museum and our campus, in my mind. Our youngest artifact. It's intended to open the door to space tourism. And our oldest artifact. I see an item that is in pretty darn good shape, even considering its age. Along the way, we'll talk to the Museum of Flight's experts about how they take care of all the stuff we have. When I tell people that I'm the director of collections, people usually think that means that I spend my days asking for money, that I am a debt collector. And bring in voices from outside the museum to help peel back the layers of these artifacts' stories. We get a chance to fly items that are just solely ours to then return to people when I got back so that they would have like this memorabilia that went to space. I'm your host, Sean Mobley, and this is the Museum of Flight's collection. This is your collection. Curious yet? Then let's get started. Most people's first guess at the largest artifact in the Museum of Flight's collection is an airplane. It's a good guess. The museum is home to the city of Everett, which is the first Boeing 747 ever built. And the two-story staircase you need to walk up to go inside it gives you some idea of the size. But the guess is wrong. The largest artifact in the Museum of Flight's collection isn't an aircraft or a spacecraft. It's a building. The Red Barn, of course, is the largest artifact that we have here at the museum, and it was originally built as a shipyard, and it was part of Boeing's Plant One, where they started building airplanes in 1916. And it was graciously moved here by Bill Boeing Jr., mostly, and uh, became the Museum of Flight in 1983. The Red Barn is an icon at the Museum of Flight. It holds a special place in the hearts of many volunteers and staff. Paul Harvey, one of the Museum of Flight's docents, for example. Dad always wanted to get into, into aviation, and he had written to uh, Consolidated and to Bell and to Northrop Douglas and uh, Lockheed Boeing looking for work, looking for a job. This was in 1939, and Boeing responded and said, you know, we can't have you come out here for an interview because the money's kind of tight in 1939, but if you want to come out to Seattle and become, and it was a beautifully written letter, I mean, the, the PR guy at, uh, at Boeing was just tremendous, but it was a career in aviation, which is the coming thing, and the yada dee da it was a beautiful letter. Dad said, that's what I want to do. I want to build airplanes. And uh, so at 20 months old, I arrived in Seattle. Dad started work. He worked here in this building, upstairs in uh, the Red Barn, Amy Heydrich is the Museum of Flight's Director of Collections. I think of it as it's not just red, but it is also the heart and soul of the museum and our campus. She also feels a particular affinity for the Red Barn. 
Carl V. Bracken, who established our uh, library here at the museum and was one of the founders of the Pacific Northwest Aviation Historical Foundation, it was his passion to build a museum around the Red Barn. When I think of the Red Barn, I don't immediately think of the Boeing Company. I think more of our museum because I know how much it meant to the founders of our museum. Even I have an affection for the Red Barn. Before I joined the staff of the museum, I was a volunteer first, and I spent most of my time doing living history interpretation in the Red Barn, standing on the old wooden boards, surrounded by artifacts telling the story of early Boeing history, wearing period clothing and playing the role of a wing rib maker in the old Red Barn. The reality is, though, that most people won't think about the Red Barn as an artifact, at least at first. It's a building, and most people don't think of buildings when they think of artifacts. But the Red Barn is an accessioned part of the museum's collection. It's a very museum technical term, um, but it really just means that we have legally taken possession of the artifact or collection or whatever it may be, and that it is now a part of our collection. There's a funny footnote to this little technical museum discussion. <laughs> yes. So we've got uh, we've got two separate collections, as they were. We've got our air and spacecraft collection, and then we have our small objects. Um, and so we usually say uh, that all small objects are anything smaller than a full-scale aircraft. But of course, that's a huge misnomer because the Boeing Red Barn is, in fact, our largest accessioned artifact. And uh, how we've gotten around that um, for all these years, I don't know, but we'll, we'll continue to uh, have it be a part of our small objects collection. So the next time you're at the museum, remember to check out our largest small object, the Red Barn. But given that it is an artifact, we care for it in the same way that we would care for any of our objects, with some caveats, of course, because people are allowed in it. Um, people can touch it. They can walk through it. They can see exhibits in it. It's a little bit different than, uh, than other objects in the collection. The Red Barn is not only an artifact, but an exhibit space, a public area, and we use the interior of the building to tell the story of the people who worked in it. So the Red Barn was basically ground zero for um, the founding of the Boeing Company as we know it. The building was a shipyard un until 1916. Bill Boeing Sr. was having a yacht built. And in 1910, Ed Heath, who owned it, he was a shipwright, uh, was building an 83-foot yacht for Bill Boeing. And Bill was afraid that before that yacht got finished that uh, Ed Heath was going to go bankrupt. So he bought the building um, and all of Heath's debts so that the ship could continue to be built. And Bill Boeing owned a shipyard. So they finished his yacht and then went on to build other yachts or ships in the shipyard. He, uh, over the course of the years surrounding that time was becoming more and more increasingly interested in aviation. He was unimpressed with um, a seaplane model that he had acquired and basically took it upon himself to say, hey, I want to start building my own planes. It took a little while for Boeing's fledgling airplane company to get its footing. When one of Bill Boeing's original collaborators, Conrad Westervelt, had to leave Seattle, it opened the door for another young engineer. Boeing asked Westerfeld as he was leaving town, he's a naval officer, so he got orders to the East Coast. As he was leaving town, Bill said, uh, well, uh, in your class at MIT, 
was there an aerodynamicist, an aeronautical engineer, and he had been at MIT and uh, in Boston and had a Chinese gentleman named Wong Su in his class with him. Wong Su was persuaded to come to Seattle to be Boeing's first aeronautist, and he designed another airplane or redesigned the BMW into the Model C, and then the Navy bought 50 of those Model Cs. And so Boeing Company was established, and all components of aircraft um, in the early days were built within the Boeing Red Barn. And so it's amazing to walk in there now and to think, um, it's a big space, but it's not that big of a space compared to uh, the full-scale aircraft that you see hanging elsewhere in our museum. It's, it's hard to believe that any full-scale aircraft were actually constructed in there. The Red Barn's unique position as both an artifact and an exhibit space has many perks. Visitors can walk around inside it, see the original wood structure with their own eyes, and docents like Paul Harvey can use it as a teaching tool to immerse visitors in a way that simply viewing an artifact from a distance just can't replicate. So this would have been a machine shop. Now you see we're running late. Now, I want to ask you a question. Look here. This is an aircraft manufacturing plant, but he's making a table leg. Why do you think that is? Using the red barn as an exhibit space may seem like an obvious move, but using an artifact in this way presents some major challenges, as our collections manager, Sarah Frederick, explains. Probably one of the most used artifacts in our collection um, in that there are people in it every single day doing all sorts of things. I can hear them walking around yes, above us right now. exactly. <laughs> I'm glad when they're walking and not running. Sarah has an especially unique perspective on this because a lot of her time is spent in one of the museum's collection storage areas, one located in the basement of the Red Barn, right under the feet of our visitors. One of our challenges in small objects is that our uh, main collection storage area is directly underneath the um, Boeing Story Gallery. Um, and we have staff offices down there and collections processing, collection storage. Um, and we have our ceiling is the floor of the gallery. My own office is right across from this collection storage space, along with many workspaces of our education staff. Footsteps are just something you get used to. But footsteps overhead are merely an annoyance compared to the other issues that come with having people inside an artifact. People can break stuff, drinks spill, plenty of other problems can arise. So whatever falls onto the floor of the gallery potentially falls down into our collection storage area, um, which is why we're very adamant on the no food and drinks <laughs> in that uh, particular gallery and things like that. There are some parts that have been recreated because it was in such poor shape when it arrived, but we still try to maintain the structural integrity in every way possible of the building while still allowing it to be used as a functional exhibit space. The Red Barn is it's difficult. It's a historic building, it's a landmark building, but it's, you know, used for summer camps. The building does now have official landmark status. And as part of that, we have some considerations. A lot of the building um, is not original. 
to the 1910 iteration of the building when it was used by Boeing. We are in the rainy Pacific Northwest. Um, There was a lot of wood rot, in particular on um, the side structure of it, which eventually when they hoisted it and they were barging it, a significant portion of that part of the barn collapsed and, and was lost and had to be completely reconstructed once it moved down here. But our focus is on kind of those parts that are original, which is um, a lot of the exterior walls and things like that. We don't want to damage any parts of the building that are original and historic. At the end of the day though, the Museum of Flight has made a decision to bring visitors into the Red Barn. The risks are real. After all, most museums, ourselves included, make a big deal about not touching the objects. Don't touch the art, right? But. We feel in this case, the rewards outweigh the risk. A lot of people come into the to the Red Barn and they're awestruck and they look around and I, the question that I continuously get is, is this real? Yeah, this is the real building, this is the one. And to preserve this building is absolutely spectacular. And everybody then, of course, they've all flown in Boeing airplanes and this is where it started. And you're walking where all these folks years and years ago walked. And, and, and it's overpowering. It really, it, a lot of people are just, they're, they're dumbstruck when they walk in that building. And doing this stays true to the original vision of the founders of the Museum of Flight. Harl Bracken had this vision that it could be moved and that we could build a museum campus around it. At that time, the Museum of Flight was actually at Seattle Center uh, in one of the old buildings built for the Seattle World's Fair. But he really thought that the museum deserved a home here on Boeing Field. That was always his vision. And we have in the collection, we have all these wonderful, like original drawings and designs and plans of this museum that was going to be built with the Red Barn as the showpiece in the center. The Red Barn was always there in every single design for this museum that was done in the 60s, the 70s. And then, of course, it came to fruition in the in the early 1980s. The Red Barn was always there. So it's always been kind of at the heart and soul of our, I would say, our modern museum here as it exists today. As you've probably deduced by this point, the Red Barn hasn't always been in the present physical location. When the museum opened on its current campus next to King County International Airport, As Amy just described, the building itself was literally picked up and moved. It was no easy feat to move the Red Barn here. It's now located about a mile from where it used to be. It was barged down the Duwamish River to this current area and then trucked over to the site where it sits now. Moving the Red Barn saved the building's life. When it was still on the Boeing campus, it it had begun to decay. When the building was abandoned, and let's see, memory serves me right, Boeing sold that building to the city in 1970 or 71, and it really sat abandoned until 1975, and then it was in bad shape. But this doesn't come without a price. Moving an object, any object, from a building to a wood carving to dinosaur bones, runs the danger of stripping that object of its context, which is so important for historical research. That's why, for example, it's illegal for people to take arrowheads from national parks. They lose a lot of their meaning. Sarah Breiter is an archaeologist. The way an artifact is positioned in a particular location 
is often key to understanding a bigger picture. As soon as you move artifacts, you actually lose quite a bit. And so we try not to move them unless we absolutely have to. She's currently finishing her PhD in archaeology at Northwestern University in Chicago. Her specialty is archaeology involving buildings. I think part of the issue um, we have with regard to artifacts in this country is that we don't really think of the places we live as being like old and part of the past because they're often still used as part of everyday life. We think of artifacts as things that are in the past and are no longer part of, of how we live our lives today. You deal with a certain issue looking at a building because a building is composed of other things. But as a place where people lived, and it, it is an artifact, it is a, a piece of human life, and it's just a very big piece. There are two popular misconceptions about archeologists. One, that archaeologists are looking for dinosaur bones. Two, that archaeologists are daring adventurers who go into old tombs to retrieve artifacts. Dr. Jones, again, we see there is nothing you can possess which I cannot take away. Reality is quite different. Those are literally people committing crimes. Indiana Jones is a criminal who goes in, um, destroys ancient sites to get something shiny and runs off with it. That's because, if at all possible, archaeologists would much rather have all that stuff stay right where it is. Indiana Jones might have learned a lot more about that Hovito temple if he hadn't sent a giant ball rolling down after him to wreck the place. Of course, then we wouldn't have one of the most entertaining adventure films of all time. The houses that I look at are part of something called the medieval grid. The medieval grid is a streetscape that was actually laid out in the medieval period and is still the layout of the town today. And if you were to move one of those houses, it would be kind of hard to have that same impact and experience as, as you would seeing them all together alongside you know, the cathedral and within earshot of the medieval market that is still going on. So place is important for getting a sense of how people experience um, everyday life, just on a sensory level. Whether you're working with centuries-old cities in England, like Sarah does, or with a much younger airplane factory here in Seattle, reality has a way of throwing a wrench into ideal situations. And sometimes artifacts and cultural objects simply must be moved. Basically, if there is road construction or a pipeline going through, artifacts and archaeology is actually considered an environmental resource. So archaeologists go before these construction projects and they'll search for archaeology sites to protect them. If there's a lot of construction happening in an area and they, they need to move this building, Moving a building might be the only way to save it. The Red Barn fell into that second category, buildings that had to be moved, lest they be raised and consigned to photographs and fading memories. And they were going to tear it down because they wanted to build that container port there at that spot. The Red Barn's current location adjacent to the King County International Airport, also known as Boeing Field, while not the original location, does mitigate some of the damage done by the move keeping it in this general vicinity, if they had moved it any further than they had, 
it wouldn't have been appropriate because we're still here on Boeing Field. We're still in the middle of the cradle of, of Boeing and the hub of everything that is happening um, related to the Boeing company in this area. And that's where it always should be. It's, it's such a vital and important part of their history and of our history, of course. Knowing that the original campus no longer exists, nothing about Plant One, you know, those buildings, they aren't there anymore. And so in in our way, I think what is gained is by making sure that it's always in a stable place, that it'll be cared for in perpetuity to the best of our ability, make sure that it didn't get lost to time, which if you think about, could have easily happened in just another decade or more if it had continued to to deteriorate. But my curiosity was piqued. This move took place before I was born. I had a vague idea of where the Red Barn had been, somewhere north of the museum along the Duwamish Waterway, which is a river that flows past the western edge of the Museum of Flight's main campus. The museum has a video of the Red Barn on a barge floating down that waterway, which I'd seen, and really displays the feat of engineering and planning it took to pick up and move a multi-story building. And incidentally, if you want to see that video, text the word FLOAT to 206-487-7090. That's FLOAT to 206-487-7090, and we'll send you back a link. But I wanted to retrace these steps. I wanted to find where exactly this building stood. So I connected with docent Paul Harvey, who you've already heard from. Who better to be my guide than someone who drove to pick up his dad from the Red Barn as a kid? We hopped into Paul's car, departing from the Museum of Flight's parking lot on a typically rainy Seattle winter day. What a lovely day to be looking for a building that isn't there anymore. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The Museum of Flight is nestled in an industrial area of Seattle. As I've mentioned, we're right on Boeing Field, which is a busy cargo-focused airport and surrounded by Boeing production and research facilities. There's so much Boeing around us that people think the Museum of Flight is owned by Boeing, which it isn't. We've been an independent nonprofit from the very beginning. This is all plant two. It was about a mile long. It's all along East Marginal Way here. Barging a building isn't the only engineering feat the Duwamish Waterway has seen. Finding the original Red Barn location is made more difficult by the fact that the very landscape has been altered. The whole idea of moving the land around to suit development was baked into the uh, thinking of the time. That's David Wilma, an author and Pacific Northwest historian. As the city began to expand, it was really hemmed in by these hills. Seattle has a history of massive earth-moving projects. A whole number of regrade projects began to try and level these hills and move the dirt, what's called spoils, into what were then tideland. And this was area that could be developed for uh, industry and housing and that sort of thing. At the time, the early 1900s, cities all over the United States were undertaking similar terrain engineering ventures, buoyed by the enthusiasm surrounding the success of the Panama Canal thousands of miles to the south. The successful completion of the canal had a major impact on Seattle, and not just because of the engineering involved. Many fortunes were made 
or enhanced, by the explosion of new trade opportunities the Panama Canal created. Bill Boeing was a very wealthy man. When he was 22 years old, he inherited over a million dollars. So in today's dollars, we're probably looking at between 20 and 25 million is what it was worth. And uh, his father had uh, bought some property over near Hoquim on the west coast of the state of Washington. And there were a lot of big trees on the property. The trees were cut into lumber, and then it was loaded onto ships, and the Panama Canal was brand new. And so that lumber was then taken to the east coast of the United States, New York, Philadelphia, Boston, and it was drawing prices about three times what it would get in Seattle. On the southern edge of the city, a confluence of rivers which cut across the landscape in wide zigzags and oxbows was considered an obstacle to development. The land itself was fertile. Salmon runs, of course, came every year and were an important part of the uh, Duwamish peoples, the, the native peoples' culture and economy. So it was just a, a lush green area, but it was subject to flooding. It's hard to sell lots if it's going to be underwater a couple of weeks a year. And a uh, crooked waterway is just not really conducive to seagoing commerce. You needed something straight. Developers wanted to be able to uh, turn that land around uh, for Uh, industrial and residential purposes. And so, in the 1910s, the Duwamish was dredged and rerouted. Industry along this altered waterway boomed. It was possible to uh, locate industries on the waterway, and then they could uh, be serviced either with raw materials or to be able to ship goods uh, down the waterway to L.A. Bay and, and overseas. The land the Red Barn sits on today at the Museum of Flight was once a flowing river that cut right where the museum and airport now stand which has been diverted a few hundred yards to the west. If it weren't for the change in the river's course, Boeing Field would likely never have been built, and the history of our museum would be quite different. It left what is what we now know as Boeing Field in a position to be developed. The whole story of developing uh, air service in Seattle, uh, there were a number of ideas that came up, and, and Boeing Field in the 1920s was the winner. Of course, that revenue comes at a cost. In 2001, the industrialized Duwamish Waterway was named a Superfund site by the Environmental Protection Agency, joining places like the Hanford site in eastern Washington and its campus of leaking decommissioned nuclear reactors. There was no regulation as to how you disposed of particularly industrial waste. Probably the most prominent is uh, polychlorinated biphenyls, PCBs. So pollution is one aspect. The salmon runs that relied on the slack waters and the the, the shaded areas and the the gravel bottoms for spawning were were devastated. Just the loss of uh, other kinds of habitat, you know, the story of human occupation. There were other costs. As the port expanded south down the river, it needed more land for storing the cargo containers. And an old abandoned factory that Boeing hadn't touched for years was sitting on prime space. The land was slated for sale, and that building, the Red Barn, was set to be raised to make way for progress. See what I mean? Place is important to an artifact's story. As Paul and I made our way through the rain in his car, we crossed a bridge and found ourselves surrounded by those cargo containers. Okay, so we're going to go over to West Marginal Way. We got off the state highway that cuts through Seattle, Paul regaling me with stories of growing up in the city. We used to go home this way because we lived in Arbor Heights, which is beyond White Center, and this 
Highland Park Hill. He slowed the car as we drove down West Marginal Way, facing north, the area where the red barn would have been, somewhere to our right, behind barbed wire fences on the concrete surface largely obscured by more stacks of containers. San Francisco. Now this area in here is, uh, is, is where the barn was. It, was. it was over in here along the river, okay, in this area. Unable to get much closer because of the barbed wire fences, and motivated by the rain not to stray too far from the vehicle, Paul pointed out the general location where he figured the building stood based on his memories of the landscape. So, so it's pretty hard to tell exactly where it was because of the... Right. It's all container ships now. But, that, but this, this would have been the road going in front of the Boeing plant that, in the model that we saw. It's right along in here. That would have been on the west side of, uh, of the plant. And we turned around to head back to the museum. I'm going to stop here and turn around. We can go back. We got close, but I wanted something more specific. Remember what I said in the last episode about historians being akin to detectives? Well, I put on my own detective cap and got to work. On our drive, Paul had pointed out a building next to the road that he remembered being there when he was younger. There's a photo from the National Archives you can easily find online, an aerial photo showing the Red Barn and the rest of Boeing Plant 1, taken in 1941. That building, Paul pointed out, is easily seen in that photo. And using it as a reference, I was able to pull up a modern satellite photo on Google Maps and even replicated the angle of the 1941 photo. And that way, I was able to track down the exact location of the Red Barn were it still standing today in its original location. What was an inlet from the Duwamish was paved over completely when the land was sold and repurposed by the port for cargo. And today, the Red Barn, where workers used to roll seaplanes out of the barn doors right into the water, would be completely landlocked. I've taken these photos and smash them together and if you want to see this image of these two photos next to each other send a text with the keyword time travel to 206-487-7090 that's time travel to 206-487-7090 and we'll send back the photo Time has moved on, and so have we. The Red Barn is not in its original location, and that is okay. One of the things that is cool about the Red Barn is that um, because it was a building, was used by Boeing, we do have artifacts from people who worked in the Red Barn. We have tools that were used by folks working here. We have an alarm bell from the Red Barn that somebody, when they were leaving their job, took it with them, kept it in their closet for like their whole life and then decided oh i had a change of heart i'm going to donate it to the museum to kind of make things right again we are proud to give the red barn our biggest artifact a good home at the museum of flight and are so grateful that people like bill boeing jr led the effort to save this cornerstone building in not just local seattle history but aviation history around the world thanks to them we can keep the story of the building and its people going, if not in the context of the original location, 
At least our use of the interior of the Red Barn can allow our visitors to see with their eyes what those original Boeing employees saw when they built the planes that launched the company. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I want to make an extra special thank you to those of you who have supported the podcast and the museum financially in the past few weeks. After the appeal last episode, we received several gifts via the museumofflight.org slash podcast link. Every time one of those came in, it, it meant so much to me to literally see the value that some of you get out of the work that goes into this. Each and every gift uh, as it came in just brightened my day personally in what is a pretty tough time for everybody right now because I know that these gifts will help keep the museum going during these very troubled times of the coronavirus outbreak. I cannot express my gratitude enough for that. And I'm so thankful that so many of you took up the other call to share the episode and spread the word. The previous episode of this podcast, which kicked off this little mini-series, so you should listen to it if you haven't listened to it already, was one of the fastest downloaded in the history of this series, of this show. And the feedback I've gotten on it has been overwhelmingly positive, especially the texting feature. I'm so glad so many of you are having fun with it and hope you continue to enjoy it. Our next episode is part three of this four-part mini-series about the four extremes of our collection. We've now covered the smallest artifact and the largest artifact, so next we're looking at the youngest artifact in our collection. People often think of museums as places where old things go to be put on display, but in reality, Museums are trying to think 20, 30, 50 years into the future to try to figure out what people living then will want to learn about our world today. So come back in hopefully two weeks when I get the next episode out. If it's not two weeks, it'll be shortly thereafter to find out about our youngest artifact and also some of the challenges that museums face trying to think into the future. If you like what you heard, please share out the podcast with your networks. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. You can contact the show at podcast at museumofflight.org. And with that, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks. <laughs>